Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Before we turn to God's word, I just want to share a few things. Uh, One is that all of those new members who are welcome to come to our house, if you don't know where we live, just when you come out of the church parking lot and go right, just keep going across Laguna, go a half a mile, and we're on the left, all right? We're right on the corner of Cedarview Drive and Babson. Um, So just go across the street, go like two, three minutes. If you go more than that, you've gone too far. All right, we're just right down there, 9465 Cedarview Drive. We're looking forward to having you over this evening just to get to know you better and fellowship around food, which is always makes it better. So um, it'll be a good time. Uh, I want to share with you an update on our weekend with the elders retreat. Many of you already asked. Uh, maybe if you're not familiar with, with what went on, the leadership here, the pastor elders went away for Friday and Saturday. And it was just a blessed time. Um, It was actually, I think, a year ago, uh, January 28th, 2017, was my first conversation with the elders here at EGBC. And I walked away from that and I went home and I said, Hon, I don't know what God's doing, but those are the kind of men I want to serve God with. I mean, that was just what drew me to this church. I didn't know any of you yet. You're all right. but I knew, I knew the men that God had placed here, and I said, yeah, Roger's going, I don't know about that. Um, but I knew these brothers were men who loved Jesus and wanted to shepherd his people. And uh, so it was just sweet from my own heart to reflect on what, the, what God's done in the last year. And when we sat down, we, we talked and talked and talked and talked some more, and, and just God has raised up faithful pastor shepherds here, and you should praise him for that. Um, just godly men who are willing to sacrifice time away from their families and their jobs to shepherd Christ's church. And uh, we had good conversations. We, we wrestled through hard issues. Um, you'll see there in your bulletin, there's an update from that time. We want to communicate with you. So there's more updates coming, especially at our next quarterly congregational get-together. Uh, you'll get more information of the vision that we're moving forward with in 2018. But I just gave you kind of the high watermarks, if you will, of our time together. Um, so thank you for praying for us. Um, there was a spirit of unity and joy, and we just praise God for that. So you can see that in your bulletin. You will notice that there, the bulletin looks different this week. Um, and that is, that is not just because Jade is on a, on a, a maternity leave. Um, Jade and I have been working on this since I came. Uh, we wanted to redesign the bulletin for a variety of reasons. So I just want to talk you through that. And actually, if you didn't get one, can you just slip your hand up? And uh, the ushers are going to hand them out. Because you might be like, why do I need that? I see it every week. Well, I want you to see it. Um, and we're actually, it's going to be more fluid now. It's going to change more. And, and here's why. Uh, we want this to be something that just helps you know the church and be involved in the church and uh, keep praying for one another. So you'll notice there as you open it on the front left is a welcome to our guests. If you're new here, that's for you. Uh, We want to get to know you. There's connection cards in the back. We want you to fill that out because we want to serve you well. We want to love you well. Uh, We may have run out of bulletins. If we did, I'm sorry. You can share with your neighbor. Um, uh, Next time I'll print more. Um, Then you'll notice on that left front side in the second column is something totally different for us here at EGBC. It has the days of the week, somebody's name, and then something to read in the word of God. Now, this is not a mandatory scripture reading, okay? If you're reading somewhere else in the scriptures, keep doing it. But for some of us, you're kind of like, what do I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. So this is just, we're going to do different Bible reading plans. It might be read through the Bible in a year at, at some point. This is just reading five Psalms and a proverb each day, the character of God and wisdom to walk with God. So if that helps you, great. If it doesn't help you, it's okay. You don't have to do it. 
But then what we're going to do is this week, I just put the names of deacons and elders underneath there. That is to pray for each other. So we're going to actually, your name's going to be on there. We're going to alphabetically go through the entire church, everybody who comes, and we're just going to go through so you can be a church that prays for one another. Isn't that good? And then, and then you're going to, what, what I want you to do is actually like reach out to somebody and say like, hey, you're in the bulletin today. How can I pray for you? Wouldn't that be cool if, if you got 20 text messages in a day from the body of Christ saying, I want to pray for you, or I am praying for you. Like, that's what we want to do. So we're going to be praying through the church, and this is just anybody who comes. If you're, if, you, if you're like, I got skipped, well, maybe you should join the church, all right? And then we'll know you're here, and we'll add you to that list, okay? If we don't know you're here, we can't put your name in. All right, we want to be praying for one another. So that's going to change every week. The scripture reading is going to change and the names in the bulletin are going to change so that we can be a church that prays for one another. Then that next page is going to be just continual announcements. So you'll see that there. That's going to include everything from missions updates. So we might just change it and that right side of your, the inside is going to be an update on global missions, local missions. It might be an article that one of the elders writes just to encourage the church on a topic. It might be like today where there's announcements and updates from the elders. So this is going to help you. If you're like, I didn't know that was going on, I'm going to ask you, did you read your bulletin? Because we're going to put everything you need to know in the life of the church on a weekly basis in there. Does that make sense? It's going to be changing to help us stay connected as a body. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons we're changing it. And then the back cover is going to be just our sermon notes. And that way we're saving money on printing and not having to stuff them every week. Um, we can just right there. If you want more paper, you can bring your own. All right, but there's a half sheet there and it will just be there every week with the sermon title or theme and that will be for you to take notes on, okay? So I just want to give you an update. So in case you even noticed this morning that it changed, you may have not noticed it changed, that's fine. Just want to share with you why we're doing what we're doing as we try to continually uh, care for this church even in ways like our bulletin, all right? Okay, I think I've said everything I needed to say. Let's go to God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you care for us right now? as we turn our attention to the scriptures, would you minister to us this morning? We are gonna deal with the reality of grief in life. And all of us are well acquainted with grief. And we need the truth of scripture to shape how we think about sorrow. And so would you meet us now? Um, Would you maybe comfort us in our affliction as your word promises, would you prepare some of us for affliction? Or maybe would you help some of us get over the affliction that we've previously gone through? So Father, would you be kind to us this morning as we open your word in submission to you and we let your word speak? Would you work, we pray, for the glory of your son and in Christ's name, amen. Would you agree that thinking truth, thinking truth is hard work? It's just, it's hard to actually think truth. I mean, you could apply this to academics. You're taking a test, there's truth, there's not truth, and the truth ain't coming to your head. I mean, it's like everything else is in your head, but not the truth you need for that moment. Um, that's true in academics, it's true in the work sphere, but it's also true in our Christian lives. Like, we, we can think a lot of things, there's a lot of swirling lies in our head, but actually, thinking truth is really hard work. Like that moment where you stub your toe. My wife is, is, is uh, prone to stub her toes. Um, and, and, and maybe you're like that. Maybe you're prone to stub your toes. And in that moment, 
do you, do you think, God, you are good to me. They're like, oh, oh, I want to say things I shouldn't say right now. Right? Because in that moment when, when affliction comes, even if it's the moment of kicking your toe on the, the same corner that you always kick it on, you're, you don't think truth. Right? You, you go after whatever emotional response floods your mind. Now, that's silly, but it illustrates the point. In that moment when something doesn't go our way, we don't typically turn to truth. We don't typically turn to, oh, God, I'm glad you're good to me, even though my toe hurts. I'm glad that I have nerves in my toe to feel my toe. I'm glad that my feet work. We don't go to praise we don't go to goodness. We go right to our complaining, grumbling hearts. We're just a good, a good way to think about we don't go to truth. In those moments, we go a million other directions. I was reading in Proverbs 9 this week, and it was interesting because it contrasts wisdom and folly. And you know what's interesting? It says wisdom is loud. Wisdom is calling in the streets. And then the exact same verse later says folly is loud. Folly is calling in the streets. And what we see there is that there's wisdom, wisdom for life all through this book, but then folly is everywhere. See the difference? Wisdom is in one spot, here. And then folly is everywhere. It's in you, it's around you, it's outside of you, it's in your friends, it's in our world, it's in your workplace, it's in the news, it's in social media, it's everywhere. So wisdom is loud, but because of the world we live in, folly is even louder if we close this book. If we don't go to this book and know truth, there is no way we will fight the lies with truth. And one of the most common lies that I believe Satan attacks both the Christian and the non-Christian alike with is this. God is not really good. That, that I think is the, I mean, that's the lie. If you've ever talked to an unbeliever, it'll come up. At some point in a conversation, I don't think God is good. I mean, human suffering, God can't be good. And they're gonna continue down this pattern of God's not good. That's what Eve believed in the garden. God's not really after your good. God's, God's actually holding out on you. If you follow me, it'll really be good. And then as blood-bought saints, followers of Jesus, we're with the same lies. God, you're not really good to me. I mean, you're good to everybody else. I mean, they look happy. They look financially successful. Why are you not good to me? And we, don't, we really struggle with God's goodness. And the lie screams at us. And we need to be ready to combat that lie with truth. You know the old phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight? You've heard that? All right, I'm not the only one who's read that. Okay, good. You know, the enemy of God is, is, in a, is in a gunfight for your soul. He comes after you for blood. He's not passively sitting back like, oh, okay, well, we'll see what happens. No, he is an aggressive enemy with, coming with all the weapons he has against you, and we sit back with a pocket knife. We're like, oh, I got this one. Brothers and sisters, we are called to stand firm like to resist the devil, to be able to combat the lies that are thrown at us. And frankly, we are terribly equipped to do so because we don't go to this book, we don't know the God of this book, and when those lies come in, 
instead of being able to combat it with truth, we begin to believe them. And we begin to question, and we begin to become bitter at God, and then we, become, we, we go down this spiraling misery, and we're, it, just, it is a terrible place to be, isn't it? Because maybe, maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. But it started with the inability to combat the lies that you were flooding your soul. And here's the problem. In the storms of life, in the storms is when we typically turn to God. Like, you know, when, when something real bad happens, that's when we're like, okay, God, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow you now. I'm going to turn to you now. The problem is that you can't wait until the storm comes to start thinking truth. That's not going to work because whatever comes in is what's going to come out in that trial. I, I shared with you before that, that life is like hot water and you're just a tea bag. You don't like what life comes out of you, right? When life brings out, you're like, ooh, yuck. Well, that's just because it's what's inside of you. The, the trials that God, that God brings, the trials the enemy throw your way, it reveals where, where you've been thinking. It, reveal, it reveals, are you a person that goes to this book and knows this book? Or do you just respond with whatever worldly wisdom says? And so this morning, I'm hoping that this can be kind of like a practicing session. We're training our minds of how to walk with God. So this morning, you might be in the midst of your greatest trial in life. And I think God's word can minister grace to you this morning. But this morning, you might be thinking, well, I mean, yeah, I've got some issues going on, but it's not that bad. You know, not that bad. Well, God's going to minister to you too because you need to learn how to combat lies with truth. And if you don't do it now, you you sure ain't going to do it when life gets hard. Right? I think of practicing like we're all, maybe not you, but we're all watching the Olympics. At least you know they're happening. I love snow sports, okay? I grew up in snow. Everything ice and snow and cold, I love it. So I'm watching them and I'm, I'm blown away. Did you ever watch the freestyle skiers, the guys that go down those big jumps and 60, 80 feet in the air, spin all over the place? Do you know that when they, when they get to the Olympics and they do that, it's not their first rodeo? Like they're not up there on that platform like, oh boy, I wonder how this is gonna go. I mean, well, we, you know that. They've done it thousands of times. I've been to Salt Lake City a lot. Park City, Utah has this pool in the summers where the skiers go down these rollers and they flip and they land in this pool that's the size of this entire building. I mean, it's phenomenal. They're doing it all year round, learning how to do these strange things and land in water so they can land in snow and not kill themselves. Why do I bring that up? Because they practice. They practice so that on the stage of the world, they can nail it. We have to be the kind of people that we rehearse truth. We practice biblical thinking because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And if you're not practicing, brothers and sisters, when that comes, you're going to say, God, you're not good to me. You took something that I held dear. You wrecked my life. You changed my plans. And you're going to begin to point your finger at God because you've not practiced what it means to think truth and walk with God in the mundane of life. And so this morning, we need to look at the goodness of affliction in the goodness of God. 
That's a loaded statement. The goodness of affliction in the goodness of God. The two cannot be separated. Let's read Psalm 119, 65 to 72 once again. You have dealt well with your servant. O Lord, according to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Just very quickly, just a little bit of context of Psalm, or, or maybe, yeah, context of Psalm 119, 65 to 72. You, I've shared with you before, this is a giant poem. It's an acrostic poem. Every section begins with the same letter. So you have the A section, if you will, the B section, the C section. Well, here we're in the, the Tau section, okay, in the Hebrew alphabet. And every verse, 65, 66, 67, starts with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Actually, five of the verses start with the exact same word, which would make sense because if you're writing poetry, your words are limited if you've got to use one with the same first letter. So this, the theme of this section is undoubtedly good. When you see the word good or well, it's the same Hebrew word. And you'll see it at least five times in this section. So you see this statement there at the beginning, you've dealt well with your servant. In Hebrew, it's tuv, that's the first word, good, and then he goes on, good, you've been to your servant. And you'll see that throughout this psalm, this section. He's going to deal with the goodness of God and God's good dealings with his people. But what else do you see here? You don't see goodness here connected to his physical or tangible happiness. That's where my mind would go, wouldn't yours? God, you're good. You've made my life good, according to me. No, he goes, God, you're good. And he's going to establish the goodness of God in the context of suffering. Are you, are, you, are you tracking? So this is one of those, oh, I wouldn't have gone there in my humanity. That's not how I think about goodness. But under divine inspiration, the author of scripture is going to proclaim with clarity the goodness of God. He's going to connect it to the circumstantial suffering of life. And he doesn't separate God from goodness and suffering. He weds them together in a masterful way. So here, the first thing we want to look at is the goodness of God. I'm not going to deal with this text straight through. I'm going to bounce around. I think it's going to help us get the context and themes better as opposed to just walking straight through it. So we want to first look at the goodness of God. Now, this could be one of those statements that you're just like, well, Pastor Justin, we know God's good. Everybody knows God's good. I don't think so. I think... We attribute goodness to God and we define goodness however we want. So when you say God is good, when I say God is good, we might mean two totally different things because we've not defined good. We need to go to scriptures and see how scriptures define the goodness of God. Here we, let's, the first thing we want to look at underneath the goodness of God is we see in this Psalm that God's character is good. We go right to the heart of God. His character is good. Good, not just what he does, but who he is. Look at verse 68. This is a profound statement. 
If you literally translate it, it says, good you are, good you do. That's what it means. I mean, that's it. Good you are, good you do. The character of God is good. The essence of God, the essence of who he is is goodness. That is, that is, if you could say, what is the quality of God that just beams from him? It's his goodness. Let me just show you a few verses. Psalm 86, five. Psalm 86, five says this. Give ear, nope, 86, five, there we go. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You're good. And what do you do in that goodness? You forgive. You display mercy to anybody who calls upon you. You are good. It's who you are. A few weeks ago, I took you to Exodus 33, and I'm going to do so again. Here is that great chapter where Moses, I believe in a genuine desire to be encouraged. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says to him, Moses, I will, in verse, verse 19 of Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses, you don't need to see me. You need to know that I'm good. If you want to see God, know that he's good. That's better than seeing him. You know, we, today we, it's like we want to experience something like, oh, wow, I saw God. Wouldn't that be cool? So people go to services and they fabricate God showing up. That's malarkey. That's a joke. We don't need it. I mean, here God himself says, Moses, you don't need to see me. You need to know that I'm good. And when you know I'm good, that is better than seeing me. I will make my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name. What is that name? Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will have mercy. The essence of God is goodness. One more reference, Psalm 145, seven to nine. The goodness of God. Uh, this, is, this is marvelous. 145, seven. They shall pour forth the fame of your what? Abundant goodness. Interesting. He doesn't talk about his holiness, even though God is holy. He doesn't talk about his love, even though God is love. He doesn't talk about his justice, even though God is just. The nations will pour forth the fame. What do you think of when you think of the fame? You think of maybe the world's greatest athlete. You think, I mean, like uncontested greatest. Maybe the world's greatest superpower or the world's greatest whatever, the fame of something. The fame of God, what will they say? Oh, you are good. You are abundant in goodness. They'll sing aloud of your righteousness. He goes on in verse eight, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse nine, steadfast love. And then verse nine, the Lord is what? Good to all. Do you, do, you, do you see that? All means all. All humanity. God is good to all. He is that good of a God. He doesn't withhold goodness from anybody. He is good to all. His mercy, not getting what you deserve, is over all that he's made. Everything. He is a good God. Do you see that? We have to be so convinced of his goodness that when the lies creep in that God, you're not good, 
were like, no way. I'm not going down that road, Satan. I'm not listening to the lies of my flesh in this world because my Bible tells me God is good. Now, I may not know how that all adds up sometimes, but I know he's good. And I'm gonna hold on to the fact that he is good. So I need to ask the question, what does it mean by the goodness of God? Let me tell you what it not is. It's not. That does not mean goodness is in God. Like you and I, goodness could be in us. Like it's a part of us. You know, you have like a pie chart and goodness gets 25%. And the other, you don't want to know what it gets, right? That's not the goodness of God. It's not like the quality of goodness is in him or the quality of goodness is a part or a piece of him. It's not an aspect of his character. That's not how the goodness of God works. It's not that he's sometimes good and sometimes not. That's how we think of it, right? I mean, isn't that how we talk? I mean, God is so good to me. Oh, he blessed me with a new job. We're not so quick to say, man, God is so good to me. He took my job away from me. We, we don't, we were like, hey, that ain't good. I mean, it's good when he gives me what I want, but when he takes away from me what I want, uh-uh, he ain't good, right? We, we, we don't see the goodness of God, but that's not how God works. He's not good to us sometimes and not others, all that he does in you and for you is, is good. And that's where we begin to spin because our experience doesn't always seem to match up with that, right? And again, we gotta go back to what does God's word say? Well, the goodness of God is what theologians call an attribute of God. An attribute of God is something that is a part of all of God. So it's not, again, we're going to talk about the goodness of God, but it's not like we have God's goodness and his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. And God wakes up today and he says, today, I'm going to be a God of goodness. Well, tomorrow I'll be a God of holiness. And on Tuesday, I'll be a God of righteousness. It is every moment of his entire existence. He is all of those things in perfection. So God is consummately good in every way, all the time. He is consummately holy in every way, all the time. He's consummately just in every way, all the time. And the list could go on and on and on. So when we talk about his goodness, we must not say, well, it's a part of what God does. It's an aspect of who God is. Even though, I mean, sometimes he withholds, because then we get into, well, he's not good today or he's not good in this scenario, but it's, no, it's actually, he is good. All the time, God is good. And you've heard that phrase. There's some Christians that shout that phrase in their services, but what about tomorrow? We actually believe he's good. Do we actually believe that he always does good? good, even as this psalm says. So this is a statement that we must wrestle with and agree with, not just in the happy-go-lucky times, but in every aspect of life, you are good and you do good. That's who you are. It's not just a pretty worship song. It's rubber meets the road Christianity. It's, I am angry at God. Are you ever angry at God? I mean, we see it all over the scriptures. People angry at God. People that follow God being angry at God. And it's coming back in those moments of, God, I am struggling with what you are doing in my life. But I know this. You are good. You're a good, good God. 
And I'm going to hold on to that even when I don't see it because you're good. That is essential to this entire discussion this morning. The character of God is good. It's interesting that in 65, not only does his character good, but it would make sense that God's acts are good. Look at verse 65. You have dealt well, that's the word good. You've dealt good with your servant. This is really profound because here we see two components in this verse. God's actions towards his children are good experientially. That's this first part. It's an experience. The way in which you've dealt with me, God, is good. But as we've already talked about in Psalm 119, this con- the, the context is not one of happy-go-lucky prosperity. It's one of suffering and agony and discouragement and hope and longing and misery and joy. So he's not saying, God, you, you've, done, you've, dwelt, you've dealt well with me because my life is going well, according to human standards. It's God, because you're a good God, everything you bring into my life, I can categorize as good because you're good. So the psalmist is not referring to in any way a life of ease and comfort. He's not saying, God, you've dwelt well, you've dealt well with me, so I've never had a problem. I mean, isn't that what we want, folks? Just be honest for a moment. I told the elders this weekend in our time, we were talking, I said, don't we all want the prosperity gospel to be true? We, we want God to give us a life of absolute pain-free comfort. We want God to just, one day we wake up and there's seven figures in our bank account. Boom, God bless me. Retiring early. We want God to do what we think is good. We really wish that that prosperity message was truth, but it's not, right? We, it's where our human longing goes, though, and it's what we must continually repent of, where it's God, forgive me for thinking that that is what it means to be blessed. Forgive me for seeking you in hopes that you would do what I want you to do, because that's not his goodness. We pervert it to understand in a way that is carnal and sinful. What we see here is the psalmist by faith, that's key. He by faith believes that everything God is doing to him is good. Now let me just digress for a minute. Let's say that this psalmist is Daniel. It might be, it might not be. Let's say it is. Did Daniel know suffering? I mean, how would you like to be ripped from your city, home city, between the ages of 13 and 17, most likely watch your family get killed, you're taken away from everything you know by a foreign nation, and you're made a slave for the rest of your life. Now, he was a prosperous slave, but he's a slave nonetheless. I mean, that's a a great way to start your life, like maybe a little bit of PTSD for the rest of your life. All right, I mean, this guy's got problems, and his life is full of problems, being thrown into a den of lions because he stands up for Jesus. His friends being thrown into a furnace because they stood up for Jesus. I mean, this, is a, this, is a, this, is, this guy's life is shaped in suffering. And if he wrote this, you do good to me. Let's say it's King David. Life shaped by suffering? I mean, you think your family is dysfunctional. You got nothing on David. I mean, multiple wives, sons trying to kill him. Children sleeping with an incest and murder. I mean, this is a mess. And he says, God, you've been good to me. You, you have done good to me. You have, you have dealt good to me. 
That's what I mean when it's by faith, right? It says by faith, we take God at his word. God, you are good and you do good. Even when I think it should be different, you are good to me. So just, it's interesting, just again, this goodness of God. We can't believe the lie that goodness is what we think is best for us. Can I just encourage you with this? Praise God that he doesn't give you what you think is best. He does not give you what you want. He gives you what you need to be like Jesus. And if God gave me what I wanted, I would be a wreck. Truly. And I look back on my life already and I can say, man, I thought that's what I wanted. Oh God, you spared me. Wow. That would have been a terrible road to go down. Ever been there? Where you want it, maybe it was a career path, maybe it was a relationship, and it was like, God just, he was good to you. You wanted it, he was good. So God doesn't give us what we want, that's not what it means. This does not mean here that God is ultimately concerned about your happiness. That's the idol we worship at. Happiness, comfort, that's the idol of our country. He doesn't, that's not what God's about when it says goodness. You see here, the psalmist can say, you have done good to your servant because he, he knows by faith that God's ultimate end is his likeness to Christ. That's what God's going after. He's gonna conform you to the image of his beloved son and he's gonna do it at any cost to your comfort and to your ease. He is gonna push you to be like Jesus. And when we actually long for that, when we want Jesus truly, then we're gonna say, God, you are good to me. Even when I don't see it right now, you are good and you do good. And this is where we've gotta bring up Romans 8, 28. Because that is one of the most abused verses in the Bible. It's where we throw it out as kind of the, everything will be okay. It'll just get better. So what does Romans 8, 28 say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So that verse is ripped out of context and typically proclaimed like this. If you love God enough, God will be good to you in whatever way you describe good. Right? That's what we mean. We think goodness looks like this, whatever your goodness is. So if I love God enough, God will be good to me. So then how, to, how do we twist that verse as we say, well, if, God isn't, if God's not being good to me, what's the problem? I don't love God enough. So I've got to love God more, right? If you love God, all things work together for good to those who love God. So that must mean I love God more. He's more good to me. So I see God blessing this guy. Well, he must love God more than me. I've got to be more like him. Oh, that's a horrible theology to live by. What this verse means is actually this. You love God. You have been called from darkness into light. You are a child of God. You love God. And he's going to work out his good plan in you, whatever it looks like. And it might mean you have a life that looks more like Job. And God is good to you. 
You, you might have a life that's kind of like Isaiah. Preach judgment to a nation that hates your guts. And nobody's ever going to repent. But keep doing it, and I'm good to you. Okay, thanks God. We, we don't define goodness. We know he's good. As we'll even talk about later, we see it in the gospel. When we see we love those who love God, all things work together for good. We must know that that goodness is defined by God and that goodness is him conforming you to the image of his son. And that is the ultimate good. Not our supposed definition of happiness and goodness. So we see that God is good in his character and his acts. We saw here in verse 65, he's dealt well with his servant experientially, but look at how he knows it. Look at verse 65, the second half of the verse. He says, you've done well with your servant. That's experience. Oh Lord, according to what? Your word. So this is brilliant. God's actions towards his children are good experientially, but they're good intellectually. They're not just good in your emotions and experiences. They're good in your heart and in your head because they're in this book. The scriptures reveal that God is good and he does good. You see, experience simply confirms what this book already reveals. Let me say that again. Experience reveals or it confirms what this book reveals. Experience is not your truth. This book is your truth. And then the experiences of life, you go back and you say, it matches up. God, you're good. And I see it all over the pages of this book. So the psalmist knows the book well enough to say, according to your word, you've been good to me. You know the word of God well enough that when you're in the midst of sorrow and suffering to say, according to your word, you've been good to me. Because if you don't, you won't say this. You'll say, God, you have failed me because you don't know the scriptures and you won't be able to say, I know that you're good, both in my experience because of what your word says. You know, we're often like children. That's why God calls us children. Um, children don't understand what their parents are doing. So my son reaches up to grab the stove and I take out a little spatula and pop him in the leg. He doesn't at that moment think, dad, I am so thankful that you inflicted pain on my backside to guard me from burning my hand off. He doesn't think that. He's just ticked at me. How dare you stop me from grabbing the stove? And, and for me, it's an act of love. Like, I, I love him enough to say, I'm gonna stop you from a life-damaging injury. Right, that's an act of love. But, but the child doesn't see it. And we are just like those children. God brings in things because he loves us. And we're like, nah, come on, God. What are you doing to me? I wanted to burn my hand off. I wanted to go down that road. And we don't see what God's doing. And we read this book and it's like, oh God, you are good. And I may not see the end from the beginning, but I can know this without a shadow of a doubt that what you're doing in my life is for my good and for your glory. So the psalmist says, my experience backs up what I've read. And that's important that we get it in that order. Don't take your experience and then try to get God's word to agree with it. But you can say from your experience, oh, I see it. I see this book is true. We believe it and then God does his working in our lives and we say yes and amen. 
This is how God acts towards his children. He is good and he does good. His acts are good. Well, look at what he says in verse 66. His acts are good, but his wisdom is good. Teach me good judgments. This is actually a, a minor theme, if you will, of, of this section. He, he says twice, teach me, and one he says, I've learned. So three references to being taught by God. He says, teach me, O Lord, good judgments and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Here we see that God doesn't leave it up to you. This is the beauty of grace-based, gospel-saturated Christianity. This is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps faith. It's not do more better, right? Just do more. I mean, isn't that the heart of religion? Just do more. So I don't know what religions you've interacted with, but the ones I've interacted with are all pretty similar. Do more. Like, just do it. Just like, go to prayers more time, be more holy, be temple worthy, be whatever, do this, do that, and you'll be okay. Here we have the psalmist running to his good God saying, God, would you please teach me? I need you. Here we see the, the, the God of grace stoops down to us in our brokenness and teaches us. He doesn't say, come up to my level. Oh, how many people have said, I'll become a Christian when I clean up my life. That is not the God of scripture. Even as a Christian, he's not saying, hey, clean up your life and then you can come near me. That's the essence of why Jesus died for you. Because you can't clean up your life on your own. And then as a follower of Jesus, you realize, God, I'm not sufficient for these things. Teach me. Instruct me. And this good, kind God stoops down through the pages of this book and the power of his spirit. And he teaches us. And he grows us by his grace. And we see that God's wisdom is precious. James 1.5, a verse that Many of you know by heart. If any of you lack wisdom, what do you do? Ask of God. What does he promise to do? He's gonna give it to you with abundance. And we often, I really believe that a lot of Christians live as though they are the unloved stepchild of God. I can't go to him. He won't listen to me. I've blown it too bad. I've not done enough for him. And we kind of cower in this pity party when the God who loves you, who made you, who sent his son to die for you says, come to me, cry out for wisdom. You want to know how to live for me? I'm here. Come ask and I will show you. So his wisdom is good. It's interesting what he says. Teach me good judgment. The word here actually is the idea of tasting. Good taste. That's the word for judgment. Now I like good food a lot. But you know what I'm bad at? I'm bad at eating something and discerning what's in it. You know the people that you eat it and you're like, oh, that has a hint of this. That tastes like this. I'm just like, that was really good. And I liked it. And if you said what's in it, I'd be like, ah, salt. You know, I mean, I just, I'm not going to pick up on the discerning flavors. I just know it's good or it's not good. And here he says, God, I want to be able to taste Goodness. I want to have, that's the idea of discretion. I want to be able to discern, is that right? Is that wrong? Should I go down this path? Should I not? God, teach me, give me good taste, good discretion that I might walk with you. Because you know, the lies of sin are subtle, aren't they? I mean, Satan doesn't come out and be like, hey, 
Justin, deny Jesus right now. I'm not, that's not where I'm at, right? But he's an angel of light. And I might think, oh, this is okay. That's no big deal. And the psalmist says, God, give me discretion that when the temptations come, when the trials come, I'll have good taste. I'll be able to discern what is the will of God, like Romans 12 too, what is good and perfect, perfect and acceptable. So teach me good taste. And then he, it's interesting, he says, and knowledge. And oh, that we would know what knowledge is. It is not puffing up, right? It's not theological big heads. It's interesting, the word knowledge in Hebrew was this experiential word, all right? So back in Genesis chapter two, when God makes Eve, what did Adam say? Or what, what did God say about Adam and Eve? Said they, he said, woe, this shall be called woman, taken from my bones. And then it says this, Adam knew his wife. That doesn't mean they had to talk. Okay, and it's not because God is embarrassed to talk about sex. The Bible's full of that language. It was, it's the same word. To know something is to have an experience with something. So it's not just information, it was intimacy. Here the psalmist is saying, God, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna have a knowledge of God that transforms into living for God. I want it to be something that is, is both, it, I know it here because it will change how I live. That's how the Hebrew language understands knowing and living. So his actions or his, his, his request is that I would be able to discern and that I would know why. Because of Psalm 119.9, what's the whole point of Psalm 119 as we've talked through this? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. God, I want to know you and I want to walk with you. So he says, God, teach me wisdom that I would know you and walk with you. And in God's goodness, he teaches us. Well, we must look at one more thing about his goodness this morning. Look at verse 72. Here we see that the word of God is good. God is good in his character, okay, his essence. He's good in his acts. He's good in his wisdom. He's good in his word. The law of your mouth is better to me. That word better is the word for good. It's what starts off the whole verse. Good to me is the law of your mouth. I love how he says this though because he actually puts it in the sense that God speaks present tense through what? He doesn't say, he doesn't use other references that he could have used. He says the law of your mouth. We don't need a fresh word from God. This is as fresh as it's ever gonna get. We don't need God to give you some new revelation. This is it. We have all of it. We don't need any more. So the psalmist isn't going, oh, God, speak to me. We don't sit around waiting for some transcendental experience where we think God showed up. We open the book, and if you want to hear God speak, read it out loud. That's it. You read the book, and the word, and God's mouth speaks. And he says, your mouth, is the words of your mouth are better to me. What does he go to? Thousands of gold and silver pieces. The word of God is really good. Remember the context, it's affliction. We're gonna get there in a moment, it's suffering. This is not a guy living in prosperity with all the world's toys. This is affliction. 
And he says this, I think, that God, your word alone satisfies, comforts, heals, gives hope. It's it. And we are in a society that we're tempted to believe that everything else will satisfy us. A better house will satisfy us. A better car will satisfy us. A better income will satisfy us. More trips around the world will satisfy us. And we could go down that list, right? Everything down to the clothes we wear, the things we own, the toys we can buy, it'll satisfy. If I just get to this level, I'll be happy. And you know what's interesting? The psalmist is no different. That's why he goes here. He goes to the one thing the world looks at and says, this will make you happy. It's true 3,000 years ago, and isn't it true today? This is where we go, even in our affliction, right? Oh, life is hard. All right, I'm just going to shove that feeling down, and I'm going to go buy more stuff. Right? I'll, I'll get more, and I'll just, maybe it'll help me forget about all the yuck in life. And we actually think that we'll be happy if we just get more and look better and fill our coffers with worthless and vain treasures. And yet here we see that God, since God is known through the word, the psalmist can clearly, unequivocally say the word is better than anything the world can give you. And brothers and sisters, as American Christians, we have to wrestle with that. If, if you read that verse and your first thought is, oh, I don't struggle with that, then you should study it more. You should wrestle with your own heart because we are the wealthiest society the world has ever known. I mean, without question, we are the wealthiest society the world has ever known. By the nature of being in this room, we are in the world's top 5% of wealthiest. You may not think of yourself that way, but you are. And what do we gravitate towards? If I just get to this, I'll be happy. The pressures and problems of life will just be less and it'll be good. And we spend a lot of time worrying about our 401ks and our IRAs and who knows what else. And those are all fine and dandy. But at the end of the day, we need to come back with the resolute commitment that God, the words of your mouth are better than anything this world can offer. That's comfort and affliction. And if, we, if you need an illustration of that, we'll just look at the wealthiest of the world. I mean, have you ever noticed when, you go to, when you're in the grocery store, and I avoid magazines like The Plague because they're full of garbage, but have you ever noticed the front of magazine racks are all the world's richest whose lives are falling apart? And you know what? I, it's there because I really believe the world is shocked because the world thinks those people should be happy. And they're flabbergasted. How in the world? I mean, this person... They're beautiful. They've got untold millions or billions of their name and their marriage is breaking up and their kids hate their guts and they've burned through five, six partners. They should be happy and they're miserable. Why? Because they actually think their happiness comes in their stuff. Now you could be a Christian and have all those things, but if you think that that's gonna bring you satisfaction, you are dead wrong. And so he goes to the law of your mouth is better than all the world could afford. Brothers, the word of God is good and the God of the word is good. And we must know that without wavering. And I just wanna, before we move on to this second point this morning, I'm gonna, this is kind of a moment to pause and just talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. 
And when you're tempted to believe that God is not good, I want to challenge you with this. Just stop for a moment and remind yourself that God killed his son. The greatest tragedy in the history of the world. The greatest sorrow in the history of the world. The greatest affliction in the history of the world was God displaying his goodness through suffering so that you could be redeemed. So when you're sitting there thinking, oh God, you're not good to me. You killed Jesus in my place in your goodness. You're a good God. And if you don't know that good God this morning, then you need to turn to that good God in the gospel and say, God, I'm done running from you. And the goodness, kindness of God will draw you to repentance. And you can know that God. And when you question that God, run back to the gospel. The gospel that you started the Christian life in is the gospel you live your Christian life in. And you go back to that message over and over saying, God, I am not gonna believe you are not good because I know your goodness. And I know it chiefly in the death of your son in my place. It screams the goodness of God. So this morning, we must get through our heads the goodness of affliction in the goodness of God. But I wanted to start in the goodness of God. But we now need to go back to what this passage is shaped in, if you will. The goodness of affliction. And in that statement alone, some of you checked out. You're like, no way, man. The goodness of affliction, are you crazy? There's no goodness in sorrow. There's no goodness in suffering. And I want you to just Bear with me and let's open the scriptures and see what God says. So context is key, okay? Context is everything when you're studying the scriptures. What's the context of Psalm 119, 65 through 72? There's a, a few things we could go towards right now, but one is the context of wanting to be taught by God. Wanting to know God and walk with God. And I already mentioned that. Teach me good judgment, verse 66. Teach me your statutes, verse 68. Verse 70, um, 71, that I might learn your statutes. The, the request is, God, teach me. The desire is to walk with God. Are you tracking with that? The request, teach me why I want to walk with you. So the psalmist has an all-consuming desire. All-consuming, that's, that's key. An all-consuming desire to know God and walk with God. And when God transforms your life and you are truly born again, you're going to long to know God and walk with God. We had a conversation on our weekend with the elders about a person really knowing God. Can they be saved if there's no fruit? I would say no. If there's no fruit that you love Jesus, then you don't love Jesus. Just, we're called to judge fruit. Did you know that? Like, you, you should judge me. You should judge me and say, there's evidence of Jesus in you, Pastor Justin. I, you're judging me and I should judge you. Because I love you and you love me. I don't mean a critical log in my eye judgment. I mean a yes. Your, your life backs up your profession. If there is a profession of faith in Jesus, guess what? You're going to be a transformed person. You're going to long to know God because you long to walk with God. That's what's going on here. He longs to know God because he wants to walk with God. This is essential because this is the heart of the matter. Heart is what we use to describe like, diligence, right? You might say that I was, again, conversation this weekend about heart in basketball. I have no heart in basketball because I'm terrible. But you know what heart is? We all know what it is. It's what makes a, a good athlete a great athlete. They have heart. Everybody else is quitting and they're, they're going. They're, they have heart. They want to be the best the world could ever see. That's what Olympians are made of. 
They have heart. They go after it and they go after it and they go after it until they can stand on that podium and they have heart. It drives them to be up in the early mornings and late at night working out and reading and studying because they have heart to win and to drive and to go and to be the best they can be. As followers of Jesus, we should have heart that says, I want to know God and walk with God above anything this world offers. And I'm willing to do that regardless of what life brings. That is essential. This idea that we love God and therefore we want to know him and we want to walk with him. So before we even talk about affliction, it has to go back to your heart before God. Is your longing to know God and walk with God? Is that what you long for this morning? Because if you don't, when affliction comes, you ain't going to run to God. You're going to run from him. But when you long more than anything in the world to know God so that you can live for his glory, when anything, whatever comes in your life, it's going to push you to him because you love him. Look at verse 67. Here we get to this, the heart of affliction. And I want you to be encouraged this morning. And I mean that. I've been praying all week that God would encourage the brokenhearted that God would lift up those who are hurting. And I I have no question that in a room with this many people, we would have that many and more stories of suffering and hurt. Some of you are going through suffering right now. Some of you went through suffering 20 years ago, but it still feels like right now. So I don't want to approach this with a calloused, cavalier perspective that, oh, this is just a magic fix right here this morning. I don't want you to to think that if you just do this, it all gets better. But may we know the goodness of God in our suffering. Look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, but now I keep your word. Here we see that the pain produces transformation. Pain produces transformation. Interesting what he says there. Before I was afflicted, in these little words, I went astray. What is the psalmist admitting? I failed. I didn't walk with God like I should. I mean, isn't that the heart of this psalm? Teach me, God. You're not, being, you're not asking to be taught if you know everything. If you do it all perfectly. You ask for teaching because you own it that you're a failure. You own it that you're not enough. So you say, God, teach me. So it makes sense. The psalm is saying, God, I want to stray from you. He feels inadequate. There's this posture of humility before God. I went astray. But he says, I was afflicted. And that affliction caused something in my life. What does the second half of the verse say? I went astray, but now. Now I, I keep your word. So how should we understand affliction? That's really the heart of this. How do we understand affliction? What's the purpose of affliction? Well, we, again, two words come to mind. Corrective. Corrective affliction. God's going to bring pain into your life to correct you. You're going astray. And as a good father, he loves you enough to correct you. You know, again, I need, to, I need to reference parenting in our culture because our culture says if you love your children, you would never hurt them. Well, actually, I love my children enough to hurt them so that they don't get run over by a car. I don't let them play in the street. Do you? 
Is that loving? Hey, well, they wanted to play in the street. Couldn't stop them. No, I stopped them from playing in the street out of love for them so they don't get run over by a truck. I love them that much. So I'm willing to inflict small amounts of pain on them, right? Little amounts of pain so that they know when daddy says come, they come so that the truck doesn't squish them. See love there? We, we love enough to bring correction so that we spare life-damaging consequences. That's God with us. He brings pain into our lives out of love for us. Where do we see this? Well, all over the scriptures, but Hebrews 12 is clear. Let's go there. Other end of your Bible, Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning, I think, in verse seven. Hebrews 12, verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What a precious statement. God, the God of the universe, treats us as his sons. Don't you see goodness there? He is a good God. Not holding you out, not treating you as a slave, not treating you as a serf or a peasant, but as a son. He loves you to that degree. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question that should answer nobody. If you are left without discipline in which all you have participated, then you're an illegitimate child, not a son. In other words, Doug's kids are not my kids. I don't discipline Doug's kids. Here he says, if you don't, if you're not disciplined by a, by, by us, by the parent, you're an illegitimate child. It's somebody else's child. You tracking with this text? He's like, if you actually are the child of that parent, they will discipline you out of love. If there's no discipline, then they're not your parents. That's how the parent relationship works with children. But look at, this is just helping us understand God. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined our earthly fathers, us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our, what is it? Good. Again, our, our little tiny brains begin to say, time out, discipline and good in the same sentence? How can that be? Those words don't go together. They do in the mind of God. Discipline for our good. Um, that we may share his holiness. God's going after you and I being like Jesus. So he's gonna discipline us that we might be more like his son. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you get it? God brings in discipline into our lives, not because he's a vindictive ogre, because he loves you as children. And we all go astray, don't we? We go our own way, and God in love says, no, stop, don't go down that road. And that often hurts because we don't like our direction being changed. We don't like our plans being wrecked, if you will. And God's disciplining us out of love. And the conclusion is, it is good. It is good that I was disciplined. 
So we see God in correction. He's loving and gracious, shaping us because he loves us too much to let us go our own way. Do you believe that this morning? Because if you don't, you'll be bitter at God. If you don't believe that God loves you too much to go your own way, and when God stops you and God changes your plan for your life, you're gonna point your finger at him and say, how dare you? As opposed to God, you are good and I don't even see what you're doing right now, but I'm not gonna question that this is part of your good plan for my life. Would you teach me through my affliction? and through my suffering. Corrective, there's corrective affliction, but there's also what we call formative affliction. Second Corinthians 12 is a great text. The apostle Paul is suffering. He is not in sin. He is not running from God. He is just suffering. And his suffering is a pain to him. And he's asked God three times to take it away. And this is what God says. Hey, you know what, Paul? I'm gonna keep you from being conceited. I'm going to form you. In case pride was ever a problem, I'm going to make sure you live in enough pain to know that you need me. So I'm going to bring pain into your life, Paul. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, verse 7, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I played with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Brothers and sisters, God forms us in affliction, doesn't he? He forms us. There's lessons that we'll never learn if he doesn't bring affliction. You know like a good coach doesn't just say, hey, good job, go eat some Twinkies. A good coach pushes you beyond your limits. You say, coach, I can't do it anymore. And he says, yes, you can. Keep pushing. You can do better. I know you can and he's pushing you to your very best potential. We have a God, if you will, who is the consummate father and coach, and he's saying, my grace is sufficient for you, and I am not okay with you living this way. I'm gonna shape you. I'm gonna form you, because I'm good, and I love you, and this is my good plan for your life. And we, under, we need to understand affliction in those categories of corrective and informative because if we don't, we will do a few things. We'll attach all affliction to sin, right? Oh God, I blew it again because this happened to me. And then we become these like soul searching, miserable people, right? Now when affliction comes, should we ask God? God, have I run from you in any way? Absolutely. Affliction should push us to repentance, but all affliction is not because of our sin directly. Oh, maybe we live in a fallen world, but it's not because you, choose to, you chose to run from God. God could just be shaping you. So we search our souls, but we don't become melancholy in that search. And we, we need to understand the heart of God as a good father or else we'll be angry. We will think God is angry at us when we suffer. So now you don't say, God, I'm angry at you. You actually think, God, you're angry at me as opposed to a good father who corrects his children, you're like, oh man, God's really ticked at me right now because of what I've done or because of how I feel. And his plan is he is gonna teach us through affliction because it's what grows us by his grace. You know, if you wanna get faster and stronger in life just as a, in, in your physical fitness, you could read books. You could take classes. You could watch Netflix series until you know more about human anatomy and physical fitness than anybody else on the face of the planet. But if you never actually get out and break a sweat, 
it ain't going to help. And when we want to know God, we go to this book and God gives wisdom and then life is the treadmill that works it all out. Life is what puts it into practice and sometimes it's a nice casual walking pace and other times you're being thrown off the back of it. But God is teaching you through the the joys but also through the suffering. You know, this week as I'm studying this passage and I'm just gonna be real real honest, I'm studying, I'm, I'm writing, I'm praying, I'm thinking. And I got to the point of saying, Lord, I'm scared to ask for you to teach me. You know why I'm scared? Because I like comfort a lot. I worship at the idol of my own comfort. And when I actually get serious about walking with God and I plead with God, teach me, God, make me like you, you better be ready for God to wreck your perfect little happy setting. And it'll be the greatest thing he's ever done for you. Don't we struggle with that? And so I had to come to the point this week of saying, God, teach me. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means it's gonna be all all happiness for a while. I don't know if that means I'm gonna suffer injury or health or finances or whatever you do to shape me, but teach me because I want to be like your son. And this is where we see the goodness of embracing God's purpose in affliction. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Oh, that we would have such faith That's all this is. This statement is radical faith. It is good that you afflicted me. Not it was good you took it away from me. That's a different statement. Not praise God, that's over. Praise God for it. God, thank you for afflicting me because if you hadn't afflicted me, I wouldn't have learned. I wouldn't know how to walk with you. So Father, I'm grateful that you've afflicted me. Charles Spurgeon said this, and this is profound. Lord, teach me to kiss the waves that crash me against the rock of ages. That's brilliant. Lord, teach me to kiss the waves that crash me against the rock. Not run from the waves, not hide from the waves, but to kiss the very affliction because it pushes me to Christ. And I want him more than anything else. I'm not there yet, are you? Oh, that we would be there. That we would walk by faith in the mundane of life. Not just when trials come, but like right now. Maybe when everything is okay for you. Maybe it's not right now. But whatever you're going through, we would walk by such faith to say, God, teach me. God, I want to know you. Knowing full well that that means you might learn to kiss the waves that drive you to Jesus. And in that affliction, you would say, Lord, I, I needed this because I want to be like my Savior. And I wasn't going to be conformed into him, his image unless you did this in my life. So brothers and sisters, we started by saying we must learn to think truth because it's hard. It's hard. It's interesting here, just as we think about the goodness of God a few things to close. He never asked for the affliction to go away. 
That's where I pray. Is that how you pray? All right, God, my life's kind of tough right now. Would you solve it? He, he, it's not here at all. He, he just says, God, teach me. Oh, and God, thank you for the affliction. And from the best we can tell, the affliction may still be going on as he's writing. This isn't post-affliction. This could be in the affliction. Oh, God, you're teaching me, and I am praising you for that. It was good because he reminds himself in verse 69 of his resolve to his God. With my whole heart, I keep your precepts. In his affliction, he didn't waver and say, oh, I'm not, I'm not gonna walk with God right now because God's failing me. In his affliction, he said, oh God, I'm committed to walking with you. In his affliction, he reminds himself of who he loves in verse 70. I delight in your law. Do you see how he's preaching truth to his soul? He's doing the hard work of thinking truth when the world is screaming at him to run from truth. And then we see that it was good for him to remind himself of what satisfies. In the midst of affliction, instead of running to everything else that we think satisfies, he says, God, the words of your mouth are good. And that is enough. The goodness of affliction in the goodness of God. Does this help us this morning see the two are connected? We can't separate the two and want one without the other. That's the, hard, that's the hard problem right there. But that we would be the kind of church that reads the scriptures and says, God, oh, make me like your son. So much, we want that so much that whatever you bring, we're gonna run to you every moment of every day. May we train ourselves practicing day in and day out, running to this God who is good. And then when the hot water of life comes, do you know what comes out of your tea bag? running to God, proclaiming he's good because it's what you know and do as a way of life. Let's pray. Father, we, we know you're good. Your word is clear. But Lord, truth be known, our experience does not always back it up. This morning, I pray that regardless of how we all came in this room, that we would be able to leave more assured that God is good and that even in our suffering, we can run to him and know it. God, teach us, we pray. May we shine for you even in our affliction. And in Christ's name, amen.